0: Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at WhitefieldsChurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Second Corinthians Strength and Weakness. Amen all right well there was a 40 year old man from named thomas infante and he was from chicago and uh, he decided that he was tired of making money the old-fashioned way you know like working for it and so he decided that he was going to go uh to his local bank and uh really just take their money and so uh what he came up with this great plan what he was going to do is go down to the, the the great plan wasn't just going down to the bank he had something better in plan, better in store. He decided that he was going to cover himself in black, uh, head to toe with black clothing and not show any of his skin. So he got a black hoodie and black mask, black sunglasses, black gloves, and so nothing is identifiable Uh, of him other than maybe his height and and weight, but uh, nothing is identifiable underneath the clothes. And so he goes there, and he goes to the bank, and he hands the bank teller the note that says, you know, stick him up or whatever the bank robbers do. Not a bank robber, I don't really know how it goes, but... um, so he hands the note. She she looks as she reads it, and oh, and she hands him all the money, and, and he runs out, uh, you know, into the, blends into the city of Chicago, you know, never to be seen from again, uh, in his mind, and and uh, he goes home, and he's sitting at home, and and he's thinking, I am free. I am rich. I am free from the law, and this is just this is the beginning of everything. I am now free to do whatever I want. I am free not to work, this is true freedom here." Which really, you know, made it even more surprising when about 20 minutes later, the police started knocking at his door, and uh, he's, he's just dumbfounded, what, what could happen? But you see, there's a lesson here to be learned, folks. For those of you who maybe are wishing to start a life of crime, uh, when you go rob a bank, you do not write the stick-up note on the back of your pay stub. Because your name and your address are on the pay stub, and uh, the police, I mean, they just followed the breadcrumbs and uh, let him right to his house. So, so Thomas has about 20 years to think about how he was almost free, so close, but uh, not quite free. And, uh, you know, just like Thomas, there are so many around us that believe that they're free, but they are not really. Free, And they believe they're free because, for the most part, they can go anywhere they want. They can do anything that they want to do. And especially in the United States, I mean, this is the land of the free. If anybody's free, we're free. We invented free. and uh, But unfortunately, freedom has nothing to do with whether you live in the United States or not. It has everything to do with whether you know Jesus or not. And that's really where we're going to be focusing on today. So our summary statement is, through Christ, we, uh, through Christ, we are free to hope, free to be bold, and free to be transformed. So let's look at the first part of the sentence there. Through Christ, we are free to have hope. And today we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be covering the whole chapter, so sit back for a couple hours. and Oh, uh, sit back for a little while. Uh, uh, Verse 1 here. Uh, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letters of recommendation, written on your heart, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So here Paul uh, starts mentioning letters of recommendation. And this is actually a very common occurrence in Paul's day because, you know, they didn't have the phones. They didn't have the internet. So when somebody showed up at your church, you had no clue who they were. And if they showed up and said, hey, I'm with Paul. Paul told me to come over here. Paul said that you guys would support me. Uh, So, you know, if you could just go ahead and do that. Um, they don't really know. And so the letters of recommendation hindered false prophets and false teachers and false apostles. And so they were good. And so Paul is not really against letters of recommendation. He's actually, it's recorded in the epistles about six times, he talks about how he's written letters of recommendation. So letters of recommendation isn't the problem. It's that people in Corinth, there were some people that were questioning whether Paul was a true apostle or not. And so that's really the problem. So Paul's rhetorically asking, what, now I have to start carrying around a letter of recommendation? You are my letter of recommendation. Paul started the church in Corinth. The the sheer fact that there are believers in Corinth is Paul's letter of recommendation. So Paul says that you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. I love the analogy that he uses here. The analogy that Jesus is the author dictating this letter of recommendation. And the parchment and the tablets is the heart of Paul and his followers. And the pen is Paul and his ministry. And the ink is the Holy Spirit. And certainly Paul is saying this kind of letter here This has way more authority than just a piece of paper that people carry around, right? And he was right. And in verse 3, notice that uh, Paul mentions stone tablets. That's kind of an allusion back to uh, the old law where Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he had the stone tablets in hand. And uh, he's contrasting that with the gospel that is not written on stone tablets, it's written on hearts, human hearts. And the human hearts reference is actually a reference to a prophecy from 600 years before Paul. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. So he's referencing that prophecy and saying, it has been fulfilled with the work of Christ. But Paul realizes, you know, saying, you're my letter of rec- recommendation and saying, I am the pen of God, you know, kind of weighty statements. So he's, he's going to start backing that up here with, you know, some uh, scripture here. He says in verse uh, four, he says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, whom whom has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So Paul's actually answering a question that he himself asked in the previous Chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 16, he says, who is sufficient for these things? Well, Paul's answering it here, and his answer is, I'm not, I am in no way sufficient for the work that I have been placed in. And Paul, Paul which is interesting, because if Paul is saying that he is no way sufficient for the work that God has given him, what chance do we have the, you know, to be sufficient for any work that we have been given by God. Paul says that he's not sufficient, but God is sufficient. His sufficiency comes through God and God alone. He doesn't consider himself sufficient for the great task of changing lives for Jesus and sharing the gospel. Only through Jesus is he sufficient to preach and to do the job given before him. And what's sad is that some people take this to heart, unfortunately, and they they refuse to be used by God because their heart, they're saying, I'm not ready. I'm not good enough to be used by God. I'm not in the right place yet. I need to mature more uh, to to go into the ministry or to serve the church or to do, do anything of that nature. And Paul rejects that outright. He says that you know, if, if we were sufficient in ourselves, we would never be sufficient in God. We wouldn't need God. Charles Spurgeon actually has a great quote. He says, Our sufficiency is of God. Let us practically enjoy this truth. We are poor, leaking vessels, and the only way for us to keep full is to put our pitcher under the perpetual flow of boundless grace. Then, despite its leakage... The cup will always be full to the brim. Man, what a great quote by Charles Spurgeon. He's saying, Paul is saying that spiritual ministry can only be accomplished by the power of God working in us. Our own power, we we can't accomplish the ministry. It can only be accomplished by God working in us. So at the end of the paragraph here, Paul's taking all the the statements and ideas that he's been talking about and kind of brings them all together. And he's, you know, the the Old Covenant and writing on stone and the, the New Covenant and writing on hearts. And he starts to contrast the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. And uh, this contrast is kind of going to carry us through the rest of the chapter, and he's going to build upon it and build upon it and come with some pretty profound statements that are really great. And so, but, you know, let's pause for a moment. If we're going to be talking about old covenants, new covenants, well, let's talk for a second on, what's a covenant? So, a covenant is an arrangement made by one party that has all the power which the other party may accept or reject, but cannot alter. And you can see this actually if you live in a neighborhood with, that is covenant protected. That covenant tells you what you can and can't do with your house because you live in that neighborhood. Basically, it says you can't, you know, paint your house hot pink, or you know, you can't build an Eiffel Tower in your backyard or something like that. So when you move into that neighborhood, you can either. Uh, accept the covenant by moving in, or you can say, I don't accept the covenant. I'm going to go live somewhere else. You don't have a choice to change the covenant. It's not in your power at all. And so that's basically uh, what a covenant is. And, And another word for covenant is testament. You know, Old Testament, New Testament. The Old Testament was... Uh, Or covenant was brought by Moses. The New Testament or covenant was brought by Jesus. And as a covenant, the New Testament presents the terms by which we have a relationship with God. And you can either accept the terms or you can reject the terms. You can't change the terms. That's how covenants work. But Paul's first contrast between the old and the new covenants here, in verse 6 he says, For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So the letter, he's talking about referring to the old law. The old law kills. Which is like, well, wait a minute. If the old law kills, why did God give us the old law? That doesn't make any sense. And so let's uh, set something straight first. That... Paul says in Romans that the law is not bad at all. The law is good. He says, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold under sin. So the law is good. In Leviticus, it says that the law provides life for those who keep the commandments. The problem is that we're sinners and we keep disobeying the law. So that's a pretty big problem. And once we disobey the law, we're sentenced to the consequence of breaking that law, which is death. But the good news is the spirit that brings life does what the law could never do. It brings about the fulfillment of its own demands. The law demanded but it didn't give a way to fulfill it. The new law, the new covenant comes in, and not only does it make demands, it gives you a way to fulfill those demands. Under the new law, we're motivated and enabled by the Spirit to overcome our sinful selves and follow God. And the final outcome of that is eternal life. So the Spirit brings life. And now Paul is really gonna dive into this contrast that he's building here, and he's gonna use a story from Exodus chapter 34 to do it. Now Exodus chapter 34, uh, the story that he's talking about is actually just a short story, so we're not gonna turn there, I'll just give you the the highlights. Um, It's when Moses comes down from the mountain uh, and his face is, is reflecting the glory or radiating the glory of God, so much that the people are kind of fearful. And he ends up actually putting a veil on his face uh, to protect the people. And so uh, this is kind of uh, where he picks up here in verse 7. And it says, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such a glory that the Israelites could not gaze on Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? But if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, this is the case. What once, was, uh, once had glory has come to have no glory at all because the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory how much uh, i'm sorry much more will uh, what is permanent have glory since we have such hope actually let's just pause there so moses is arguing here how much better is this new covenant than this old covenant. Now, he admits the old covenant came with glory. It came with lots of glory. So much glory that when Moses received it, his face is radiating that glory when he comes down the mountain. And if you remember the story, uh, Moses is up on the mountain and the mountain's covered with smoke. The mountain has thunder and lightning and literally it describes trumpets from heaven and the voice of God thundering throughout the, uh, the land. And, you know, Moses comes down and his face is glowing. The people are terrified. Uh, that, that's a lot of glory that the old covenant came with. But Paul is saying that it's nowhere near the glory of the new covenant that has come. And through the arguments of the, the paragraph, I'll sum it up. He says, if the old covenant was temporary and brought condemnation and brought death, Surely this new covenant that is permanent and brings righteousness and brings the spirit of life, surely this covenant is way better than the old covenant that brought death and condemnation, right? This is what gives Paul his hope, this new covenant, this even better covenant, this covenant that's magnitudes better than the old covenant. That's where Paul places his hope in. But this kind of begs the question that, why did God give us the old covenant to begin with? I mean, what's with this covenant? Because this covenant sounds a lot better than that covenant, am I right? I mean, that that was really good. Brings life, death, what happened? So, you know, one thing we have to set straight though is that the old covenant and the new covenant are not enemies. They're friends, they work together, and they work together to get, uh, to accomplish what they've been set out to do. And so one cannot do without the other. They complement each other. And everybody who looks upon the old law should see that there is no way that they can accomplish the law. There's no way that they can follow the law. Only one person ever followed it perfectly, and that was Jesus Christ. Everybody else failed. So it should, by looking at the law, it should point us to the need of a Savior. The old law points us to a Redeemer. It points us to salvation. It points us to Jesus Christ. That was the point of the law. You see, the law wasn't the problem. The law is glorious. It's that we sinners, we're the problem. We just don't follow it. And so through the work of Jesus Christ, the new covenant has come. And with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit writes God's law on our hearts. And the Holy Spirit gives life. It gives spiritual life that we can live out now the law of God. And so now Paul's really going to start applying this argument that he's built here in the next verses here. And so the the next section uh, of our our, uh, summary statement, through Christ we are free to hope and free to be bold. And we pick up in verse 12 here. Since we have such hope, we are very bold. All right, let's move on to the next section. Oh, no, all right, we'll keep reading. All right, since we since, uh, we are very bold, not like Moses... Who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze upon the uh, gaze gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end? But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over the hearts over their hearts but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So this is where Paul gets his boldness from. He gets his boldness from the hope that is in the new, more glorious covenant. The old covenant restricted us and separated us from God because we just didn't keep it. But the new covenant brings to us brings us closer to God and also allows us, it enables us to follow it. It enables us to come boldly before God. And it works in us so that we can do the ministry that has been set before us. And if you need an illustration for that, you can look no further than Jesus' disciples I mean, you get a group of guys, and there's just average people, most of them never been educated at all, and look what the impact that they had on the world. They changed the foundations of the world because they placed their hope squarely on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. And so, verse 13, Paul goes back to the story of Moses And he really wants to drive his point home. And the contrast of his own boldness in the new covenant, contrasting with Moses' lack of boldness in the old covenant. And in Exodus, we know that Moses used the veil to uh, protect uh, the Israelites from the glory of God that was on his face. But we learn here in 2 Corinthians, Paul's pointing out that the purpose for wearing that veil changes over time. It starts out with the idea of protecting from this massive gloriness that's on his face. And it turns into the fact that Moses is hiding the fading glory that's on his face from the Israelites. And the glory radiating from Moses' face is glorious, but it's it's a fading glory. And so the fact that the Old Covenant was fading, gave Moses a lack of boldness. Whereas Paul says that the permanence of the new covenant is giving him more boldness than Moses had because his glory was fading. And the next verse in verse 14, Paul explains that God's own people, when they saw the, the old covenant, they didn't act like they were supposed to. Instead, the only thing that they saw in the Old Covenant was a law, a bunch of laws, that's it. You know, their hearts and their minds were hardened by sin, and it kind of acted like a veil on their face. And when the law was read, they should have seen the glory of God in the law, pointing them to a Redeemer. But all they ended up seeing were laws and regulations. That's all they ended up seeing. And so they completely missed what the law represents and who the law points to. And Paul says that in, Moses had this issue uh, of people having the veils over their faces in their days. And he says they have the issue in Paul's day. And I got to tell you, we got the issue today as well. There are thousands of people around us every single day who walk around with a veil on their face and they don't see the glory of God. They don't understand who God is. They don't understand the true meaning of the Bible and the words within it and the promises within it because the veil is on their face. They think they understand. There's plenty of those people, but they just don't. And they don't have a relationship with Jesus. But there's great news. In verse 16, Paul says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. It's that simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and the veil will be removed. And once that veil is removed, you're going to start experiencing the glory of God. Through the Spirit, you'll be able to understand the true meaning of the Scriptures. God's message to you. Through the veil being removed, you'll experience a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe. You will have true hope. You will have true boldness, all because the veil has been removed. That's pretty amazing. Let's look at the third section to our sentence. Through Christ, we are free to hope. We are free to be bold. And we are free to be transformed. So let's take a look at the last two verses. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So there's really a great Trinitarian statement here. Paul is is saying, and he says it twice here, the Lord is the Spirit. And he's saying that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one. They're one nature. They're one essence. They have one purpose. What he isn't saying is, Jesus is actually the Holy Spirit. Surprise, you know, no, he's not saying that. He says the same, Jesus says something similar in John chapter 10. He says, I and the Father are one. He's not saying that, you know, surprise, I am the Father. I actually just came down here in a different face. No, he's he's making a statement. He's saying that Jesus and the Father are one essence. They are one uh, nature and they have one purpose. They are united. There's one God. And he's mentioning this because in the upcoming passage or upcoming verses in verse 17 and 18, he's talking about a work that's going to be accomplished from the unity of the Trinity. In this case, he's talking about Jesus and the Holy Spirit working together with one purpose that accomplishes what he's talking about in verse 17 and 18. But before we get there, Ephesians 1 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So once you believe in Jesus Christ, Jesus sends the Spirit and he inhabits the believer and he seals the believer. And so Paul is saying in in verse 17 that uh, when the Spirit comes from believing in Jesus Christ, when that Spirit comes, that is when true freedom happens. And we're free from the slavery of sin because Jesus died and rose again. And we're free from fear, because in Jesus, God is always with us and will never leave us. We're free from hopelessness, because in Jesus, we have grace-filled, love-filled promises. And we're free from lies, because in Jesus, we have the truth. We're free from death, because in Jesus, we have life everlasting. In Jesus... We are truly and utterly free. But wait, it doesn't stop there. Sound just like an infomercial. But wait, there's more. If you follow Jesus now, you get a free set of knives. No. But uh, it doesn't stop there. When When we're free, we will be transformed. As soon as we accept Jesus Christ the transformation starts and he says in verse 18 when un, with unveiled face so when when we accept Jesus Christ the veil comes off and once the veil comes off he says we are being transformed so as soon as we take there as soon as Christ takes the veil off we are being transformed once we become a believer this transformation starts taking place And what's really exciting, I mean, the the change is exciting, but what we're being changed into is even more exciting. And it says there later on in the verse that we're being changed into the same image. Well, what is that? What's the same image? Just look back a little bit in the verse there, and it says, beholding the glory of the Lord. So beholding the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the image of, of the lord the image of jesus christ himself and how do we do that well by beholding the glory of the lord but what does that mean beholding that's a word we don't often use nowadays Uh, it means gazing upon observing and so we're being transformed by gazing upon christ and so what does it mean to gaze upon It means to place our entire focus on Jesus. It means to fix our eyes upon Jesus. The more that we're focused on Jesus, the more we will be transformed by the Spirit. And it goes the other way as well. When we take our vision and our focus away from Jesus, we're no longer being transformed. And so practically speaking, we got to look at, you know, it's pretty difficult to focus on Jesus throughout the day continuously. I mean, I have difficulty and I work in a church. You know, I get kind of just caught up in the day-to-day life of of busyness and what needs to get busy, what needs to get done. And I, my attention drifts away from Jesus at times. So it, it happens to all of us. And so here's my suggestion, build Habits of intentionality. Build habits of intentionality. And then I I want to share three things that kind of uh, I find very helpful. The first one being intentionality creates routines in your life that puts the focus on Jesus. And this can be anything. It could be Bible study. It could be prayer. It could be listening to the radio. uh, Grace FM is a great channel. I hear there's a pastor on there, local guy, uh, has some great sermons on there. Uh, I forget his name, but he's uh, he's pretty good. uh, So uh, also, um, you know, but whatever you choose to do, uh, do it consistently. Because if you do it intermittently, it's hard to build good habits, right? Whatever you choose to do to to help you focus on Christ, do it consistently. Number two, intentionally remove distractions. And this can be uh, things that distract you. It could be people that distract you. So you need to ask yourself, what or who in my life is, make, is taking my focus away from Jesus. And it could be anything. It could be TV shows. It could be Uncle Joey. You know, it, it, it could be Facebook. It could be music. You know, and don't pretend like you don't have distractions, because, you know, we all do. We all have distractions. I have plenty of them that take away my focus. And uh, those things need to be pruned. Number three, intentionally surround yourself with reminders of Jesus. And uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, in his bedroom, actually, he took out all the pictures and he only had one picture, and it was of the shroud of Turin, the, the face of the shroud, the, the death shroud that Jesus supposedly wore uh, at the time um, when he was, uh, when he was uh, put into the tomb that he, he had a picture of the face of this shroud and that worked for him. Uh, I don't know if it would work for me. Uh, I personally like scriptures on the walls or pictures of nature. Uh, my wife and I just bought a huge six foot picture of the Grand Tetons. To me, I look at that and I go, God's glory, that God created this and he created it incredibly. So when we focus on Jesus, we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us. And we allow the Holy Spirit to change us. We allow the Holy Spirit to mold us into the shape that is Jesus Christ. And it's incredible that through Jesus, we have this true freedom. We have freedom and hope because the new covenant has brought us Uh, brought us by, uh, I'm sorry, the new covenant has brought to us freedom in Jesus and life in Jesus. We have freedom to be bold because of what Jesus did on the cross is permanent in our lives. And we are free to be transformed into the image of Jesus because Jesus lifted the veil from our face. Now we can see Jesus clearly and we can gaze upon him and allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives and be changed. So through Christ, we are free to hope, free to be bold, and free to be transformed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the work that you have done through your Son, Lord God. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the freedom that we find through your Son, Lord God, through your Spirit. And I pray, Lord God, that we would remember that we are free. We are no longer prisoners of sin, but we are free to be transformed, free to work For you, Lord God, in any way that you place before us, Father. And I thank you so much. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.